It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson. Are you ready to get real, break through, and learn how to make your midlife the best time of your life? Take on those life challenges and turn them into opportunities? Let's rock. Here's Dr. Ellen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rock Your Midlife. I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I am so delighted that you are with me today. If this is your first time, welcome. And if you're coming back, welcome. We have some people as far away as Japan, which I was so excited to to read that. We also have folks from the Netherlands. So I'm amazed that women from all over the world are looking for ways to rock your midlife. Hey, if you want to get in touch with me, just go to the midlifewhisperer.com. That's the midlifewhisperer.com. And I would love to know what you think about the show. So leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Well, today is going to be a really important show. We are going to talk about a problem that is ubiquitous for midlife women, but we're also going to provide you with amazing solutions. We're going to talk about depression and you may not realize it, but one in eight midlife women suffer from depression. That that is correct. We actually have the highest rate of depression for any group by our age and gender. And we're going to talk about a very specific type of depression, which I was really interested in learning more because I actually had this. It's called perfectly hidden depression. Our first guest is going to tell us all about it. And our second guest is going to provide us with some spiritual solutions for it. But first, I have a question for you. What do you do when your life looks perfect on the outside, but inside you're miserable and even depressed? That was my situation. On the outside, my life looked incredibly perfect. I seemed to have the perfect marriage, perfect children, perfect career. I kept getting degree after degree, all the way up to a PhD in psychology. I thought my life really was perfect. And honestly, after reading Dr. Rutherford's book, who is going to be with us in a moment, realized that I was using my perfectionism to hide this depression. There was this idea that if I got on that hamster wheel and I was more perfect and my body was perfect and my career was perfect and my family was perfect, nobody would realize, including me, how incredibly depressed I was. And what ended up happening with me is, honestly, it was exhausting. When I was in my 40s, I was working as a personal fitness trainer. I had negative body image. I had eating disorders. I was working out four to six hours a day with all of my clients, running myself ragged, destroying my thyroid gland. And really, I felt like for me anyway, depression was like this giant stop sign, which I think it is for a lot of midlife women when we're trying to do everything perfect we're taking care of everybody else. We are overwhelmed and borderline burnt out. Depression is a forced stop. And that's really what happened to me. I realized, my gosh, something is wrong. And I think my primary recommended that I go to a psychiatrist. And I sat down in his office and told him what was going on. And he looked at me and my family history. And he said, hey, Ellen, you've got depression. And I was kind of relieved. I mean, in my mind, again, with this perfection, I was like, I could, I could outwit depression, right? Depression happened to other people. Health, mental health issues were not okay in my mind. And thank God this is changing. We're talking about it. But for me, at that moment, that was a real relief for someone to look at me and say, you know, you've got an illness. 
you know, you can't outwit this. And what happened with me is that um, my psychiatrist prescribed antidepressants and I do recommend them for a lot of people. That's one of many steps initially that really works. So I started taking an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. I also got some therapy, did that for a couple of years. And then I discovered self-compassion, which was so interesting because with self-compassion, we're not on this perfectionist trap. We get off the self-esteem perfectionist trap of always trying to do more, be better, judging ourselves. And instead we simply start to love ourselves exactly as we are, warts and all. Boy, boy, did I have warts. And I have to say, as I am navigating the breast cancer um, horizon, self-compassion and letting go of the perfectionism has been so powerful because right now I just, I just want to be joyful and as high vibe as I can as I am facing my treatment. So I'm here to tell you, if you are experiencing depression, and I know Dr. Rutherford is going to give us a better definition of it, but really, if you are going for days and weeks of really struggling with even getting out of bed and feeling happy and just not feeling like yourself, um, if you're blue for days on end, I recommend talk to somebody, talk to a therapist, a psychiatrist, your primary care physician, because um, depression is an illness. And again, it affects millions and millions of midlife women. We aren't sure if it's the hormones that are causing it or some of the side effects of perimenopause, but I know that it's very painful and you really, um, it's okay and you can get help. So I'm here to say, get a, get a diagnosis, meds, therapy, meditation, self-compassion. There is so much that you can do. And we're going to really dive in right now and talk to Dr. Margaret Robinson Rutherford. And she is a clinical psychologist in private practice. She has more than 25 years of experience treating individuals and couples for depression, anxiety, and relationship issues. She also offers her compassionate and common sense therapeutic style to the general public through her popular blog and podcasts with the goal of decreasing the stigma around psychological treatment. Her podcasts and shows on, and she's coined this phrase, perfectly hidden depression, PhD, have reached thousands as she sheds light on the overlooked presentation of disease. And she has written a wonderful book, which is also called Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression. So delighted to welcome you to Rock Your Midlife. Thank you, Ellen. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And I do uh, want to jump in real quickly and, and say there's a distinction between what our culture calls high-functioning depression or smiling depression, which is someone who may really want to look in control and and um, may be able to, to slap a smile on her face, get out of that bed that she doesn't want to get into. But she knows she's depressed. She may be in therapy. She may be on medication, but she recognizes there's something wrong and perfectly hidden depression. The, how I've tried to identify it and uh, discern it or make it distinct from high functioning depression is that often that camouflage that you so aptly um, described a couple of minutes ago may even be unconscious. What happens is that 
trauma occurs, some kind of trauma, whether that's bullying, whether that's actual abuse or neglect, whether that's being the star of your family. And so you get, you learn that, you know, your all your worth are your accomplishments, whether you're enmeshed, whether you are a pseudo adult child, because you had to take care of your siblings, something happened to you early on that you maybe you just grew up in a family that refused to ever admit that there were, there was anger or there was sadness or there was fear. You weren't allowed to talk about that. Um, I worked with a man whose mother had died and, and her father, his father uh, remarried very quickly. All the pictures of his mother were taken away. Uh, he was told to call this new stepmother mother and she was never discussed again. It's like, not only did she die, but she vanished. That was his form of trauma. And so this happens so, so unconsciously, it's just, well, I'm, since I can't do that, since I'm not allowed to do that, since it's not safe to talk about who I really am or what I'm really experiencing, then this unconscious process begins to happen. You know, the psychoanalytic people will call it suppression and then repression, but it's basically stowing away things in some sort of emotional closet that you can't see that you may even say, Oh, well, I don't even have that. I'm just not somebody who does feelings. Or if I started crying, I wouldn't stop or whatever you happen to say to yourself. And it's, it's been amazing to me how many people, um, when I first started writing about this HuffPost, I was writing for them and I, I wrote this post called the perfectly hidden depressed person. Are you one? Uh, and I just kind of grabbed that term out of the air thinking, well, that's a pretty apt description of that. And I got hundreds, even thousands, no, not thousands, hundreds of emails, several hundred. And uh, it's like, you're in my head. How do you know about this? What, how, you know, what do I do about this? And because the term perfectly hidden depression, both identified that, yes, there was a loneliness and despair that would sort of seep in every now and then that they were aware of, or that perhaps one of your listeners or more are, are aware of, but they, they, they push it away very, very, very quickly. Um, and so they're aware that something's kind of their guts going, you know, this just isn't right. Yeah, your life looks great. You're very successful. You have a perfect family like you were describing, Ellen. And, and yet I, I, I'm, I sometimes want to die. I, I sometimes just want to get in my car and drive away. And that doesn't fit, you know, what I'm actually seeming, what I should be experiencing. And this disparity between that can be really, really dangerous. And um, the, the research around per perfectionism would say that there are several types of perfectionism, but one especially is particularly lethal. And we can talk about that in a minute if you want to. Yes. And I think that, um, you know, those of us who grew up in the sixties and the seventies, which you mean X and baby boomers, right? I think we grew up where we didn't talk about emotions. You know, it was sort of that fifth, I grew up, you know, fifties mentality where everything was supposed to be great and wonderful. And you were just get good grades, get in the right college. I mean, that's what happiness was about. We never, ever talked about emotions. And I know when I was in high school, I, I was awarded most serious. I was a depressed kid, but it was okay. I'm serious. I didn't smile. I wasn't joyful. My sort of the childhood joy just evaporated as I became a teenager. And I think 
we weren't taught on how to work productively with emotions. That's why I love self-compassion so much because it's an emotional regulatory technique. If you are listening, your emotions are there to give you information. All your emotions are valuable. I think we were taught that it's good to be happy, joyful, gratitude, but God forbid you should grieve, be sad, feel any kind of resentment, any other of those difficult emotions. And so depression is like, it's depressed. You're pushing those emotions down and they don't go away. And then you wonder why you have these feelings that, like, as you said, that you just don't want to exist anymore because there's so much pain that it's almost like, you know, constipation, right? You're not giving it an opportunity to breathe and, and be seen. And I think as kids, I know my own self, I was, I just wanted to be perfect. That was my job to be the good girl, to be a people pleaser, to do everything right. Um, and I think that that really led to depression and you marry that with some, some genetic predisposition and it is, it's very dangerous. Yes, it is. And, and, and again, no one is coming up to these people going, are you okay? You don't seem like yourself. You know, with classic depression, it has to be a noticeable change from your normal behavior that either you notice or other people notice. By definition, it has to be. So you're sort of uh, overwhelmed by your inner life and what's going on inside, probably with a lot of painful um you know, feelings about yourself, very low self-esteem or hopeless or helpless or whatever. Whereas in this kind of depression, it, you really, uh, I had one, one uh, person ask me now a couple of years ago, well, is this really depression? And one of the, one of the ways to think about it uh, in, in cardiology, for example, many women would go to a cardiologist prior to the most recent research on women, and they would have a different symptom picture than men did classically, not all the time, but sometimes they would have symptoms that might um, predict a potential heart attack. And the cardiologist would say, well, no, you don't fit criteria. You don't fit. Well, when they began researching women, they did fit. And so cardiology changed its whole rubric of, of the things they look for when they're talking with a woman versus a man. What I am asking, begging, <laughs> pleading with the mental health profession is to say, don't get stuck in that set of symptoms that is in the DSM-5 that I can name in my sleep, that if you don't fit these symptoms, then you're not classically depressed or clinically depressed. And so, because these people will not look like that, they will, um, I, I tell the story in the book, it's the very first story that I diagnosed a woman with anxiety and um, she, we would talk about all kinds of things. She'd been in therapy about three months. I thought she was doing a wonderful job. And her husband called me um, back when we actually called one another. <laughs> and, uh, or I think I used a pager, believe it or not. And I, I talked with him and he said, something's wrong. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know. My wife left me this, me this weird message about the kids and, and I, she's not answering the house phone. And, and I actually went over there. Now, this is not something, I'm not the Nancy Drew of <laughs> my hometown. This was a very unusual thing for me to do. But I, I also had a sense in my gut and make a long story short, he had told me how to get in the house and I found her in bed having trying to kill herself and but the you know I, the uh, emt came and so she was whisked away and i sat there and said i didn't 
I never picked up that she was really this depressed. I've never known anybody that has a lot of anxiety that's not somewhat depressed about it, but this was way over the top. And I looked around her house and it was perfect. It was immaculate. There were dishes drying in the sink and toys put away in a toy bin. And, and I just thought, I've got to figure something out here. Now, I wish I could say that that was the beginning of this book. It wasn't, but it was the beginning of me saying, I have to, I have to step out of the box that I'm using to try to determine if someone is depressed or not. Yeah, it's hard because the, the whole MO is that you are trying to cover it up and making and always feeling like if I'm perfect, then everything will be okay. Yes. And that never happened. So let's talk a little bit about the core traits of the syndrome sure. of perfectly hidden trauma-based depression. Sure. I, that's a term trauma-based perfection is um, if I ever write another book about it, that's what I'm going to call it. It's what you're not saying is what I want to call it. They're basically what I, what I did was I tried to come up with what I would call a syndrome and a syndrome is a group of behaviors or beliefs that you'll find together. Kind of like a codependency is probably the most well-known syndrome. And the behaviors are things like a highly critical shaming inner voice that's just constantly telling you, you're, you're, you know, you shouldn't have your own Voice of America show. Who do you think you are? Uh, you shouldn't be on that Voice of America show. Um, and so it's, it's constantly trying to whittle you down. And that, again, got started in childhood, most likely. You're very overly responsible. You're always the one saying, I'll do it. You worry a lot. And yet you don't want to look like you worry a lot. So you just grab a lot of control. The more you control, the less you worry. Um, you will uh, stay very analytical in your head. You much prefer that kind of conversation to, you know, a more emotional one. In fact, you may not even know how to express painful emotion. You typically focus with a whole lot of sincerity on other people. You, you, you are a good friend, but you don't let other people in. You don't talk about yourself hardly ever. Um, it may be that you, uh, again, sort of dis distract or discount any painful emotion. Again, I said this before, but you'll say, oh, gosh, if I start crying, I'll never stop. Or, you know, I'm just not the kind to, to you know, get upset. Uh, you're very task oriented, accomplishment oriented. Um, as you said, you, you named off uh, working out in long hours and all the things that you, you know, and eating disorder, it's, you often have kind of have a, a concurrent kind of problem that has to do with control or anxiety. That's very important. Um, again, you usually look, uh, unless procrastination is a huge problem, uh, you're going to look very successful, but you're not going to have true emotional intimacy because you have to talk about conflict. You have to be have conflict to have talk about painful emotions to have actual intimacy so uh, that can be a problem uh, i think that's about all of them <laughs> yeah so conflict adverse procrastinating yes and, shameful self-talk yes and so what i would also add to your self-compassion idea is the antidote really to this kind of problem is self-compassion and it's self-acceptance and how I define self-acceptance is this. It's a working definition. I'm still working on it. But I see self-acceptance as recognizing that your strengths and your vulnerabilities, both of them define you, but neither of them define you completely. As I like to say, I, I have three letters after my name. You know, I'm proud of those letters. I worked hard for those letters. 
They give me license to do what I love to do. I've also been married three times. Uh, my 20s were highly chaotic and I was married twice. I've been married now 32 years, but I, I, I made a lot of mistakes. And so those are facts about me. You know, I may be judged for either one of them, really. Um, but I, I don't let I, I carried around shame about those marriages for years until I finally began to work, you know, work on my own perfectionism and that, you know, I had to just say, OK, yeah, those are facts about me. And neither one of them defines me more than another. It's wonderful that you can talk about the vulnerability and there's so much oh. work coming, you know, of course, the great Brene Brown talking about heart centered connection really starts with being able to be vulnerable and to be, have the courage to say, yeah, my marriage isn't working the way I'm relating to my body isn't working. This being on a treadmill, I think we also have this hustle culture, which is constantly telling us do more, be more, work harder. And we also have a culture now where people are burnt out. It's, a, it's interesting you mentioned a treadmill. I'll go back to what I was saying a few minutes ago. The most lethal, and by, by what I mean by that is that the most, uh, the, the, the type of perfectionism that is most likely to lead to suicidal thoughts. And again, if anybody has, I mean, this is a trigger, please be careful listening. But um, it is this what's called socially prescribed perfectionism. And what that means is, it's not expecting yourself to be perfect. It's not necessarily expecting other people to be perfect, which is the two other kinds. It is, it is this incredible need and desire and drive and pressure to fulfill other people's expectations. It doesn't matter if it's your child's, your child's teachers, your spouses, your partners, your friends, your bosses. If there's an expectation out there, you have to not only meet it, but exceed it. And the treadmill um, reference is about it's like you're on a treadmill and you don't have any control over the incline or the speed. And so and the better you get at doing and meeting that and doing it and oh, look, she's doing it, she's doing it, she's doing it, then the more that incline and speed can change and speed up. And so you are constantly the, the mantra Gordon Flett, who's a wonderful researcher calls it. He says, it's the better you do, the better you're expected to do. And think about that for a second. I mean, that is a pressure cooker. Um, you, have you ever heard somebody who in your community, uh, you know, they led a great fundraiser and uh, say they made $50,000 for this nonprofit or something. And what people come up to them and say, we want you to do this next year and we'll make even more money boom. <laughs> and so they get hooked into this. Well, I guess so. I go, well, you sure I'll do it. Um, it can be a, you know, obviously there are a lot of reasons for this and that goes, uh, that pertains to whatever caused the trauma. I have a, a patient right now who, whose mother had, I mean, some of the worst OCD symptoms I've ever heard. And this woman really didn't have her own life. And she certainly deals with this she, she looks bubbly and happy to the entire community. And then she has this need to be busy constantly and is always volunteering for this. And she is beginning to realize how much of a distraction um, because she doesn't want to face how painful it was to be her as a child and have to, you know, she didn't even sleep in her own bed because she would never make it up um, where her mother would okay it. So, 
she and her, you know, her brother slept on sofas. So anyway, it's this or the ground. So it's, it's, you have a lot of things in your childhood that you, if you don't want or don't know how to deal with them, then they can come across like you're just staying very, very busy and, and you're, you've got all, all this responsibility, whereas you've still got this voice of shame. And that's what, you know, people will say, well, isn't, isn't perfectionism good? I mean, is there any type of, sure, there's constructive perfectionism. It's great. But that's fueled by generosity and creativity and meaning and things that are spirituality, you know, things that are your value system. And so you work very hard at them, whereas destructive perfectionism is all about the accomplishment. It's like going on a hike and you're, you're not, you don't notice the hike. You notice whether you're making, you know, are, is my time good? Is my, you know, am I, am I going to reach my destination in an, in a, in a uh, meaningful or apt, not meaningful in, in a successful way. And that's what you focus on. And it is a tremendously lonely way to feel. Yeah. And the way I express it myself and I see it with my clients, I work uh, with now is so much in eating disorders and negative yes. body image. This idea that, you know, if I lose weight, it feels like the weight loss is concrete. Instead of focusing on the deep problems, healing that childhood and realizing that your six-year-old is driving the ship right now, mm -hmm. you focus on, well, if I lose the 10 pounds, well, that's my problem. If I have the perfect body, then everything will fall in place. And, mm -hmm. it, and for me, anyway, and from my clients, it felt like something that was very concrete instead of looking at what was wrong with my marriage and this perfectionism and workaholism and all of these things. It was like, okay, I'll just, I'll just focus on, I feel fat. So I'll make, make a difference in that piece instead of looking at the whole, what's really, really at the root of everything. So let's talk a little bit. We have a few minutes left to talk about healing. What are the five stages of healing that can lead to greater self-acceptance acceptance and self-compassion? Sure. The funny story here is that my publisher said, well, we want the book to include healing strategies. I said, okay. And they said, and you've got two weeks. <laughs> I said, two weeks. All right. That should be easy. But really first you have to become conscious that your perfectionism is a problem because it can be your best friend, just like anorexia is, you know, perfectionism, well, I can always count on it. So you have to see and accept that it's problematic in your life. The second step, that's consciousness. The second step is commitment. Um, you don't want this to be something else you have to do perfectly, one thing. You also don't want to try to do things that are too hard. You have to start simple. And this commitment issue, again, it's like taking off your armor in the midst of battle. This is something that you're, you're in the middle of living your life. What do you mean I'm supposed to not volunteer as much? What do you mean I'm supposed to make time for myself? What in the heck do you mean? You know, I can't... I, people count on me, you know, I, I, I'm Dr. Rutherford, you know, it's, or I'm the manager of the hotel, or I'm, I'm president of this organization. How can I possibly shift any of that? You're crazy. Um, the third one is looking at um, and confronting some of the negative uh, self-beliefs that you have and the rules and the, and that you're following. Um, some of them can be somewhat small and even trite feeling, but often we are really, as I, I use this phrase before, kind of boxed into you should, you ought, you must never, you must always, that kind of thing. I'm from the South. So, you know, there was a, there was a way to look and there was a way to act. And, and um, I'm, a, I'm not in that box anymore, which I really it's, like. It's uh, shooting on yourself is what I like to call it. <laughs> 
That's right. And then um, there's the emotional part of it, which is you're trying to join uh, and connect with those emotions. Um, And so, and that's a very difficult process. So I use what's called a trauma timeline that again, don't jump into this because it's really hard to do. And if you have severe trauma in your history, you should always do this work with a therapist who, who is trained in trauma. But you go back and you think, you know, what are the things that happened to me when I was two or six or 10 or 14 that were both good and that were potentially positive in my life and which was destructive. So anyway, and then the last one is change. You know, you've got to make some behavioral changes and that's where you get your hope. And I love that you ended with hope because there really is hope. And as someone who has healed from a lot of trauma and trauma doesn't mean that you have to be a veteran and you hear, you know, the car backfires and you duck and cover. Really, it can be all kinds of things. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. We're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to be talking a little bit um, about spiritual solutions, about how connecting with your spirit, developing a spiritual practice can really help you to heal yourself. You're listening to Rock Your Midlife. I'm Dr. Ellen at the Midlife Whisper. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Midlife can be challenging. You may be sandwiched between growing kids and aging parents dealing with menopause, and trying to find work-life balance. Or maybe your life looks good on the outside, but inside you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed and wondering how to get your confidence and joy back. You need someone to help you get real, discover who you are, and navigate life. Hi, I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I'm here to help. I've worked with hundreds of midlife women, went from surviving to thriving at midlife myself, and literally wrote the book on this pivotal time period, Rock Your Midlife, Seven Steps to Transform Yourself and Make Your Next Chapter Your Best Chapter. Think of me as the one-stop shop for all your midlife needs. I'm a psychologist, nutritionist, and board-certified health and wellness coach with 30 years of experience empowering midlife women. I provide nutrition consults, life coaching, and free resources to help you transform your body, your mind, your career, and your relationships. Feeling stuck? I can help you figure out how to live authentically with joy, passion, and purpose. Every Wednesday here on Voice America, live from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I share my passion for making the most of midlife and my expertise on the most pressing midlife issues from changing family relationships, managing stress, and securing enough resources to rediscovering yourself. I also interview experts from around the world to help you navigate your life. For more information, please visit my website, themidlifewhisperer.com, for fabulous resources, including my free gift, 10 Tips to Rock Your Midlife. That's themidlifewhisperer.com. Hope to see you there soon. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. 
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Rock Your Midlife with Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. Have a question for Dr. Ellen or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. Your Midlife, I am so happy that you are here. I want to let you know that the show is sponsored by TheOptimal.me. For the midlifer who wants to feel younger, stay active, independent, and energetic without pain or injury, and feel confident that this phase of life is their best yet. Take control of how you age with the optimal.me because you are never too old to take a smarter approach to aging and give yourself the freedom to make the next chapter your best chapter. I have been using it and I've been a jock my whole life. I love to work out, but I'm finding that the optimal.me really is giving me extra tools to strengthen my joints, my muscles, move in new ways so that I can really personally want to make it to a hundred. So I recommend you check them out. You can get the first 30 days for free. It's the optimal.me. And I am excited to welcome our next guest. She is a dear friend of mine, an amazing human. She is Dr. Ruth Anderson. She's an award-winning international best-selling author and founder of Enlightened World Network. Retired after a satisfying and worthwhile career in special education and public school administration, Ruth embraced her second calling, that of a spiritual counselor, promoter, and producer for light workers. Enlightened World Network provides a safe spiritual community for speakers to share their messages and participants to learn and experience transformational growth. And you can check them out at the Enlightened World online. And I have done many meditations and connected with Ruth on many occasions. I'm thrilled to have her here. Welcome to Rock Your Midlife, Ruth. Oh, thank you, Ellen. I'm so pleased to be here. So it's great to have you. And so before we the uh, break, we were talking to Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and we were talking about uh, perfection and depression, per- specifically uh, per- perfectly hidden depression. I'm wondering if you have a question for Dr. Margaret. I do. I so appreciate the focus of this being on women. However, in, in social media right now, they're really talking about young people who are dealing with suicidal ideation, depression, coming off of a couple of years of COVID. What are your thoughts about that? Just taking us offline just a little bit here. Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of midlife women who are listening to this have children or grandchildren that they're very concerned about. And so I think it's a wonderful question. Um, You know, uh, Jean Twingy, T-W-E-N-G-E, I'm probably crucifying her name, is a sociologist who has studied uh, every generation since the baby boomers. And she is quite the a, a prolific researcher and writer. And she wrote a book that came out, I want to say two, a couple of years ago, maybe three, called iGen, like iPad, but iGen, G-E-N. And in it, she described that she has never seen a generation change uh, more and, and in a negative way, for, as, at least for, as far as mental health was concerned, um, as this youngest generation. So 
she and she describes i mean i read her book a long time ago but she says yes it's true that uh, kids aren't killing each other as much but they're killing themselves more and this was prior to the pandemic and so i think that um especially this kind of perfectionism i've heard from um I mean, I, I actually have done some um, interviews on self-work, which is my podcast, um, with athletes. Victoria Garrick came on to talk about how she struggled with depression. There are, there's a wonderful book called What Made Maddie Run by Kate Fagan. And she talks about a young University of Pennsylvania athlete, track athlete, who killed herself. And, and, and but no one knew. I mean, th- this is, and actually several, um, as college athletes at the end, these premier kinds of schools um, have killed themselves. So it is a huge problem because it's not always going to look like, again, classic depression, just like adults. And one of the things that I tell parents to do and grandparents is rather than just watch for classic depression, is your family one of those families that's talking about vulnerability? Do you talk about mistakes you've made? Do you talk about struggles you have? Not in an age inappropriate way, but do you model for your child what you're wanting them if they get in a pinch or if they get in a really serious situation and are, are thinking about hurting themselves in some way or, or, you know, you know, we, we can buy into, Oh, she looks great. She's just kind of like what Ellen was saying. She, she looked stellar in as a student in high school, but, it, it is that, you know, is that what I'm demanding of my child or am I letting my child and modeling for my child or my grandchild what I see as vulnerability? And then uh, I remember my son, when he was in college, called me and um, he was he had made a terrible mistake, but he called me because he knew that I had made a similar mistake because I talked about it. And so I don't know if he would have ever reached out to me. In fact, he said, I called you because I knew you would understand and you wouldn't be judgmental. Well, that is an amazing answer, but it's something that we as midlife women, we impact up to four generations. So certainly our grandkids, our kids, I know I'm doing more of that now with my kids modeling uh, compassion and positivity and also vulnerability and just talking about, you know, making mistakes. I was divorced as well. Know what that's like to go through that, having a failed marriage, making mistakes in business and life. And I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, so let's move, moving on. So I, first question just to, to um, piggyback on what we're talking about depression, um, Ruth, what can people are experiencing depression? What's the connection between depression and spirituality? How can we use or develop a spiritual practice to help us to embrace all of our emotions, all of who we are, both the light and the dark and the soul and the human. What are your take? What's your take on that? That's a whole book or two. (laughs) Quite a question there, Ellen. To me, with spirituality, I think depression comes in when we think we are doing this all by ourselves, when we think we are completely cut off from spirit and that we can only rely on ourselves. And I know for me, difficult times in my life, I was so reminded that spirit is right there right next to me. So um, Ellen, you had mentioned a house fire that um, we had in a very end of December this year. 
our neighborhood went up in flames. We lost a thousand homes due to wildfires. And I was in Texas at the time. A friend called me and said, your neighborhood's on fire. So we called the house sitter. She was able to get the dogs out. And that was it. We lost absolutely everything in the home. And what was most interesting to me was the three days prior to that, I felt Archangel Michael next to me so strongly. And and I know, Ellen, you believe in angels. I don't know, Dr. Rutherford, if that's part of your spiritual life or not. But Archangel Michael has been a guide for me for the last 10 years. Um, And he was so strong next to me for those three days that I finally turned and I said, what? Why? Why are you so present right here that evening our house burned to the ground and we watched it burn on the news from texas and i realized at that point not only was i being prepared for that i was so protected during that and i had no reason to fear none and during these last five months i have not had one moment of fear And I just think that that whole piece of spirituality and realizing you are not alone here in this world, we have spirit guides, we have angelic guides. Um, I work with the Christ consciousness. Um, I know not everybody's Christian and you don't actually have to be to believe and feel that Christ consciousness, but there is so much support for us at all times. And I know at those times in my life where, you know, I've been thinking gosh, I wonder if I'm depressed. You know, I've, I've had a couple of those times. Depression runs in my biological family. And those times I was able to work with it by bringing in that spiritual side. So I, I think to me, that's, that's the crux of it. You're not doing this alone. Yeah. And that's, I think so much of suffering is caused by the fact that we feel we are alone. We feel the separateness, the separateness. We, we forget that we are part of all that is whatever your spiritual lens is. There are be, there, there is energy out there that you can connect with, whether you feel it is divinity within or without or spiritual, whatever you want to call it. I personally feel that spirit shows up in a language, in a way that makes sense to us. For me, I see spirit all the time in nature. Last couple of days have just been turtles everywhere. <laughs> I cannot move forward without you know literally stepping on a turtle of saying, slow down pay attention. But that's such a beautiful point because I think that depression really is this sense of I'm at it. There's no one out there who can help me. There's no one that I'm connected with. I'm all alone and we are not all alone. We are truly part of all that is. So if someone's listening, thinking whether they're experiencing depression or other issues, how do you connect with the spiritual world? Maybe people have grown up with religion and that doesn't make sense to them anymore. Someone's listening and saying, gosh, how do I, how do I touch enlightenment? Where do you start? So for me, spirituality and religion are two separate things. Um, I was raised in a religious home, but that's not where I found the connection. I found the connection through spirit, sometimes through um, energy, through nature, like you said. Other times, just even getting a, a feeling in my gut or in my lungs or in my head, and I'll stop and just listen to that. 
I've realized over the years, I've had a quite profound connection to the um, Holy Spirit and to Divine Mother. And even as a child, I would feel really connected to nature, to the fish, to the trees. And if somebody came along and kicked a tree, I would feel horrible. You know, I just felt such sadness in connection to that. But to me, it's time. Any relationship requires time. So does your relationship with yourself and your spirituality. And so for me, it's spiritual meditation. It's a, it's a prayerful meditation. And going into a quiet place without distraction, putting the time in, listening more than speaking, really just being open to what spirit have for me today and listening. And that has become so important to me that for Enlightened World Network, we provide a meditation time every day. We're on our third year of doing that every day. And Ellen has been on once a month for the last year and a half. But it's spending that time to go inward and go upward and listen to what spirit has. And those messages make all the rest of this on the 3D realm kind of make sense, or it helps you put it into perspective in a different way. Yeah, that's really powerful for me. And just to reiterate, it just slow down, get quiet, put the time in. And I would just add too, is realize that you are a spiritual being having a human experience. You know, so often we're running around with chickens with our heads cut off again in this hustle culture and also um, turning off the damn screens. I know that, you know, we're here online doing this podcast radio show, but the screen just sucks in your consciousness. I mean, it's a wonderful way to connect and get meditations. And there's things like the Light World Network and the Calm app and so many incredible resources. But on the flip side, it's this constant, we're driven to distraction where we constantly have it in our pocket, listening for those beeps, wanting those squirts of dopamine, which is the chemical of reward. And it really, it, it takes us away from our soul. I so to turn the screen off. <laughs> yeah, turn the screen off. And the yeah. other thing too, for me, I have to start my morning that way in that prayerful meditation, because if I get hooked into the rhythm of the day, I can go all day long just responding and reacting to what's happening around me. So for me personally, I need to start my morning that way. And it just sets the tone for the rest of the day. It is powerful. And I think it's great to do it close to when you wake up. So don't grab your phone first thing. But when we're waking up, we're in this different consciousness. So you do get to hit reset when you sleep. And if you can wake up and go right to your meditation cushion. Even if you just do like five, 10 minutes, maybe read a little bit of a spiritual enlightened reading, listen to a meditation, do a little bit of journaling, whatever works through, listen to music, take a little walk in nature. It really does set the tone for your day. So I want to talk a little bit since you were about rocking your midlife. I know that you made a profound shift. What was that like for you to go from PhD educator to being you know, a spiritual healer? How did you make that shift? How did that come about? I had a huge awakening. Um, I was just about ready to retire, but I was finding that in my work as a school district administrator, I was getting messages from spirit. 
And I would be talking to a family on the phone, or I'd be talking to a school principal, and I would be hearing suggestions for what they could do. And I knew I wasn't coming up with these suggestions, but I would say them, and then I would either hear, oh, that's a great idea, or they would come back to me later and say, that was brilliant. I tried that and it worked. So I was getting messages and I had been getting messages throughout my younger years as well, but very strong as I was getting ready to retire. A dear friend of mine passed away after four months of not knowing she had stomach cancer. Um, she had had a stroke at the Thanksgiving table and I was getting messages from her. She was in California, I was in Colorado, but I was receiving messages from her and I didn't know how I was getting them. And I didn't know, I had no idea what it meant, but it was happening. It was all coming true. So when she passed, she showed up in spirit to me many times. She helped me plan her celebration of life down to the songs, down to the font on the brochure. It was the craziest, fabulous experience I had ever had. And then I needed to understand what was happening. So I started taking classes. Well, it was very important to me to find someone I could trust. And I would say to anybody who wants to learn more about their own sense of intuition, find someone you trust before you start taking classes. I took three years of classes, became a reverend while I was at it, and really learned to listen to spirit coming to me in the form of Archangel Michael and Divine Mother and Archangel Raphael, to, to be really precise there. But coming to, into this place in my midlife, I was starting to be asked to do different things. So Archangel Michael at one point said, well, take notes on everything you're learning. I thought, okay, I can do that. And then um, I heard, get on people's podcasts. I thought, oh, that means I have to actually say this out loud. So I, I said, how am I supposed to find podcasts for this? And he said, Google it. And I thought, I had no idea archangels would talk about Googling things, but they're very into the internet. So I got on several shows. And then Archangel Michael said, now have your own show. I thought, holy cow, I really have to put myself out there. And I did that. I started doing a weekly show. And then he said, write a book. Right, okay, fine. So I wrote a book. And then a year later, I heard, okay, write another book. No, not really write two. So I was writing two books at the same time. And it was all lessons from spirit. And so I have been asked to do many things, creating Enlightened World Network, Never was that in my realm of thinking, but here it is. So, and, no, it's an amazing, amazing tale for how we can all transform at midlife. Midlife really, I think, is the time where, you know, we're done raising kids. We are know ourselves well. It's time to really deepen into that wisdom. When you hear voices, you actually hear voices. Describe a little bit of what that sounds like. So sounds like a regular voice, like we're speaking to each other now, or what is that like? Sometimes it's a voice. Sometimes it's a feeling. Sometimes I'll feel something in my body and I'll say, wait a second, my, my chest wasn't feeling like that a minute ago. What am I supposed to gain from this feeling that I'm getting? And then I will either see something or hear something. 
So it, it's hitting me from all different senses, actually. Ellen, would you mind if I ask a question? Yeah, no, go right ahead. I would go right ahead. To. I want to go back a little bit to what you were talking about, Ruth, about your the fire and your house being destroyed. Um, how do you mix the fact that I'm sure you grieved with feeling like, what am I trying to learn from this or about, about your spiritual awakening? I mean, I, I think that some people think, well, if I'm spiritual enough, I'm not supposed to grieve. I'm not supposed to be angry. I'm not supposed to be confused or whatever. And so I, I would love for you to talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. There was grief. Absolutely. And I asked Archangel Michael, did I have to lose my house for my own spiritual growth? And the answer was no. Thank God, because I, I couldn't have handled that if the answer had been yes. Uh, absolutely, there was grief, but I didn't go through it alone. And part of that spiritual perspective is how fortunate am I? We lost everything we owned. We had our health. We had our dogs. We had friends that said, come stay at our house. We'd, we lost our stuff. We didn't lose our memories. We didn't lose those we loved. I think if anything, the kids learned resilience in a way that they couldn't have even fathomed. And we also realized how incredibly grateful and lucky we are. It does help you to understand what is, what is truly important in life, that all of those things that we spend so much time striving for we can get those things back, but the things that really matter, each other and your health and those you love and the dogs really were preserved. And, you know, in terms of grief, you think about so many, the, the greatest spiritual teachers, Jesus, you know, the Buddha, the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa. I mean, these people cry. Jesus is up on the cross going, I don't like this. This sucks. I don't want to be here. So <laughs> if you're not any less of a spiritual being, if you have these feelings, I think so much of, of spirituality is understanding how to heal and deal when you're grieving, when you're sad, when you have loss. Um, and that really, I think, deepens who we are. Would you agree? I do think that. Absolutely. What about you, uh, Margaret? What are, you, what are oh, your feelings about grieving you and know, spirituality? I, I I have a Facebook closed group and it's a, a powerful thread sometimes when people say, I, I, I resent saying you had to go through the trauma in order to become the, the person you are. And I think that's what you're referencing, Ruth. You didn't have to go through that trauma, but you did go through the trauma and, and you are managing it and healing from it. And that does have its, its affirmation and its, its, its own wisdom. And it is always that the silver lining piece too, of when you look back on it, I know where I'm going through breast cancer right now, trying to make sense of why, because maybe I do need this for, I think there is some chiseling that is going on, which is definitely hard to take, but it definitely um, does bring you to your knees and bring you closer to spirit when you go through things. So I think that is one of the things. And then just, again, remembering common humanity that 
nothing's going wrong. We didn't do anything wrong. But as you, we talked about this, Ruth, fires happen, people get ill, people die. It's just part of what goes on. So thank you, Ruth. And thank you, Margaret, so much for being here today. This has been truly a wonderful show. I have learned so much. Thank you all for listening. I hope that you have gained some insight, some wisdom from today. If you've enjoyed today's show, please leave me a review. Let me know about what you think about the show. Tell your friends. And you can always reach out to me at themidlifewhisperer.com. That's themidlifewhisperer.com. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Rock Your Midlife. We hope this episode has helped you get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. Until we talk again, have a fantastic week and go rock your midlife.